Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be looking this evening at verses 9 to 12 as we continue our series uh, together in the evenings on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Hear the word of the Lord. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in to his own kingdom and glory. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we ask now that your word would be an open book to us. It is true and sure. You've inspired it by your Holy Spirit. You called Paul. You had your Holy Spirit carry him along. Words were given to him. His words, but yet more fundamentally, your words. For this text, this occasion, by inspiration, for our blessing and benefit down to this day and beyond. And so we ask that you might encourage our hearts and our lives with more Christ-likeness from it. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in uh, an evening series, I feel like it's, you know, another episode of another Star Wars movie. Here we are. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we just heard the pericope, as it's called. And this evening, our passage highlights Paul's sacrificial ministry. His sacrificial ministry in a newly planted church. First, I want us to look and see what God did that made all of this possible. God decreed creation. Look around. Everything you see, every person, everything you saw on the way to church, everything you enjoy about the sky in Texas, the the heat in Texas, the lack of rain in Texas sometimes. All of this testifies to the power and glory of God. He decreed creation. And when you stub your toe, when your heart aches, when you look in the mirror and you see the person staring back for at you is not all that they should be, you are reminded that he also decreed the fall. He decreed a redemption for his people. And so we've gathered together this evening to lift up the name of Jesus. God did all these things from before the foundation of the world they were decreed. And he accomplished them by his sovereign power in time and space to his glory and our good. Look at what God did first before anything Paul or anyone else did. God was long-suffering towards the nations. The nations lived in selfish, evil rebellion against his natural and moral law that he wrote into the very fabric of their being. They saw themselves 
in a bowl of water. They could see their hands and their feet in one another. And everywhere they looked among humankind, they saw the image of God. They knew that God had made them in a way different, in a way special, in a way with special responsibilities to give Him back the glory. They knew. They knew it in their bones. They knew it even if their last name is Hitchens and they deny and they deny God exists or don't love Him. If their name is Dawkins and they absolutely deny and get professorships for it, they still know that there is a God. God dispersed and planted His people among those nations at great suffering and personal cost to His people, the people of His own heart, His extended adopted family. They were dispersed among the people and planted among those nations for a reason, however, so that God would provide in His, prov- in his providence synagogues of hope all around the world like stones, stones in a lake or stones crossing a river so that the gospel could go from one synagogue to another synagogue to another synagogue and be dispersed throughout all the known world at that time. God dispersed and planted His people among the nations for a good and gospel covenant of grace, purpose, and reason. God then sent His Son, and we rightly give Him praise for His Son coming and taking on flesh and dwelling among us. He came for us and for our salvation. He came to save us from our sins. He came to, came to gather us in to make us a part of His body, to save sinners like you and me. But oh, at what a cost has God done this for us. He poured out His wrath upon the Son of His love. The undiluted wrath of the triune God was poured out in Calvary. And there He suffered, He bled, He died. He gave His life as a propitiation. He settled and satisfied the wrath of God against us. He against whom in His own person there was no wrath. Because He is perfect, sinless, without spot or blemish, the wonderful Lamb of Calvary. God let a lost son of His people Israel persecute His church. And His head, and their head His son with them until the fullness of time was come. God allowed persecution. He allowed opposition. He allowed pain and suffering and imprisonment and death of a horrible sort, endured by His people for a greater gospel purpose. And then, just at the right moment, God struck that persecutor to the ground 
God made him blind while on his way to Damascus. He changed him from the inside out. He wrenched his world from one orientation to another by his divine power. Oh, the man was clever. The man had studied his word. He knew the arguments. He knew that he knew what was right. And with the zeal of Korah, he went out. But God knew that he was wrong, that he had misunderstood his word from the beginning, that his whole orientation needed a Copernican shift. And so that shift was made not by human will, but by divine will and power overcoming and bringing salvation to a dead man who had slaughtered countless ones in the name of the true and living God for loving his son. He changed his name. He subdued his soul. And he sent him to do the unthinkable. He sent him into Gentile gospel service. The one who was of the highest tribe, the highest station, the highest learning, who loved his people and who hated the Gentiles, he made him a lover of those Gentile souls. Look at what God did before we read the very first verse tonight together. And then look at what Paul did. Paul saw the resurrected Christ. He, and he saw that eternal life was only in him. That he couldn't, he couldn't reach it. He couldn't derive it. He couldn't achieve it on his own. By faith alone, that, that wonderful grace of God that comes from outside us, not inside us, had triumphed. Paul heard his calling even as he sat and he wondered his whole world changed. His whole life turned upside down. The guilt began to weigh down upon his shoulders of the fact that he had persecuted the church and persecuted Christ, the divine, living, and true Messiah. But he heard his calling in this. And he did not flinch from casting his die for Christ's crown and covenant the one who had subdued his soul. And he traveled to Thessalonica. And he did what became his great pattern for decades to come. He entered the synagogue. He stepped on that stone and planted his foot in that place. And he announced from the scriptures the good news of the gospel from the Old Testament text that was already there in those synagogues, ready to be read by any visitor who could speak the tongue and then speak to it in knowledge and wisdom. Paul spoke the truth and called men and women to new life in Christ. Paul proclaimed the gospel of God, but he did something else while he did it. He lived a blameless life before them. He treated them patiently and lovingly like a father does to his own children. And he worked his fingers to the bone, not to get bony fingers, 
But he worked his fingers to the bone so that he might take the gospel to them and it would blossom and benefit their souls forevermore. Paul also did what few like to do. This is confession time, you know. Confession is good for the soul. Every preacher, every pastor has certain things they like to do and then certain things they don't like to do. And you know, if you had a presbytery meeting and there was a truth meter, you know, not a mood ring, but a truth ring on every hand, and you said, raise your hand and show me the truth ring. Prove to me that you love to do these things, to exhort, to encourage, to implore. There would be very few green rings held up. Oh, it's okay to get in the pulpit and to speak so that everyone listens. They hang on your every word. Well, in seminary they tell you that's really not what happens. It's much more complicated than that. But you know, we dream. We dream. He exhorted them. He encouraged them. He implored them to live in light of God's gospel work in their hearts. He did the heavy lifting. He prayed for them and with them. He sat down next to them. He spoke to them, not just in a, in a company, but one-on-one, home-to-home, heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind. He pastored and cared for the sheep that God had given him. That is difficult work. And Paul did this day and night, and night and day, not just when it was convenient. He didn't just keep office hours. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going home now. Goodbye. Click. No. None of that. Paul worked night and day that they might see, that they might hear the truth of God, that they might have room to see that truth for what it is. His behavior towards them Proved by the grace of God that it was a genuine article. It's not that Paul was so wonderful and everybody hung on his every word because his personality was so dynamic. He didn't have the latest hairdo like some do down in the city. He didn't carry on with, with little circus and showman tricks to gather a crowd. He opened the word. He spoke of Christ He applied it to their lives. And in so doing, in humility and in sacrifice, he proved that it was really true. Paul's holiness and righteousness commended the gospel to them and challenged them to greater personal discipleship. And as he did everywhere else, Paul, in effect, told this church of new converts... Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. But look at what Paul did not do. Our passage kind of emphasizes this. Look at what I did not do, Paul says here to us. Paul did not burden them. Paul did not burden new conflicts. Converts. He didn't, pro- he didn't burden new prospects. He didn't burden new 
converts or their church. He didn't burden them with meeting his needs so that he could see to caring for theirs. Paul did not exercise his right as an apostle to be cared for, but rather he worked endlessly to care for them. Paul did not act selfishly to please his own flesh, to cut the bolt of cloth to suit his own taste and cultural expectations and everything to be righted in order so that he could be proud of the creation that he had made, this new church. No. You know, there's some church planters that do exactly that. Their plant looks just like them. And sometimes that's not really much of a pretty picture. No, no, no. We open the word. We share Christ. We invite them in. We invite them into our lives. We don't take from them as they come to hear, as they come to know, as they come to love. Paul didn't act selfishly. He pinched the flesh. He pinched the flesh that spiritual fruit might abound in their lives. He had his priorities straight. He did not keep his distance, but rather he ministered in and with this poor congregation. The Thessalonian congregation was not one abounding in riches. The Thessalonian congregation was a very humble lot. And I have news to you, for you. Compared to the homes that we live in, the community that we enjoy, the various income streams that we have in various interesting industries and ways, we live the life of Riley compared to that congregation, which was humble even for their day. He sat next to his poor congregation. Do you think he ate steak while they ate gruel? No. He was on their level. He did the loving and caring thing. He was in their company, following the pattern of Jesus' sacrificial love. And he didn't tickle their ears with pleasant words. He didn't only preach the happy verses. You know, we had a West Coast preacher who was the bee's knees and he had a rainbow Bible with all the happy texts in various smiling pastel colors. This is blasphemous. Paul didn't do that. He didn't use easy words, uh, pleasant words, easy concepts. He didn't only cover comfortable topics. He cared for them. He spoke to them. He faced them with the real facts of life. The facts of life and death and heavenly reward calling them to greater obedience themselves for God's kingdom and God's glory. You know, it's fun to tell people about new life in Christ and how great it is and you know you're going to grow in grace and you're a child of the king, you're a child of the king, you're a child of the king. Isn't that nice? But that's not all that the Bible says. It goes on to say more 
And Paul didn't hold back. He told them that in addition to being blessed by the grace of God, they also needed to strain every nerve. They needed to fill up the sufferings of Christ. They needed to do their Christian duty because in sending his son, Jesus, God didn't cancel the Ten Commandments. He blossomed them into what they had always meant and what they had always meant for them, that they're a description of Christ's likeness. Not a way to earn salvation so we can boast to God that we've been so good, but rather they lay out for us in a fallen and broken world the way of suffering in a Christ-like way that he might get the glory and not we ourselves. Oh, Paul blessed them by telling them what they needed to hear, not just what was easy to say. So, let's look at what we must not do. Now we're going from preaching to better. We must not sell the church. That's why the title is there, Selling the Church. Paul didn't sell the church, and so we must not sell the church either. We must not sell the church in exchange for sordid gain. Sacrificing spiritual fruit and blessings and benefits in the church's life for generations to come so that we may be happy and we may be easy and all may go well, not with our souls, but with our bodies. We must not cut the cloth of church life to suit our tribe, our interests, our tastes, our outside extracurricular concerns. Rather, our lives, our pleasures, our cares, to be blunt, they're expendable. They're expendable. We can spend ourselves and get gold for heaven to cast down at his feet to his glory. We give up time and talent and treasure. And he tells us in his word how to think about that. That's what we must not do, is to greedily gather things to ourselves when God in his providence has placed them for other strategic kingdom reasons. We must not hold back from doing and investing in gospel good. We must not count ourselves above doing hard work, hard work of exhorting, hard work of encouraging, hard work of charging believers with Christ-likeness charging them to be Christ-like and to strain every nerve. Yes, we must not fail to speak kindly, but yet firmly, concerning matters of eternal consequence in their lives and the lives of others. We must not fail to guard the saints from presumptuous sins that could lead countless thousands and future generations to spiritual harm and great loss. We must not even let good, otherwise good, worldly things take over our lives and strangle the best spiritual fruit 
among us. You know, I knew a church one time. Uh, their greatest talent was borrowing money. They had some very wealthy people in the church, and they could leverage their bank contacts. contacts and the church was able, able to borrow millions for their big, beautiful sanctuary. They couldn't afford it, <laughs> but they could borrow it by leveraging family private trusts and other things so that the bankers had no choice but to do their bidding. Every month, they had trouble making budget. Every month, it was a great struggle. And after I was there as their new pastor, it took me about three months to realize these guys had sold the right of being able to do church discipline and to tell people no to horrible, grievous public sin that was scandalizing the community because they had mortgaged their souls in a set of local banks, all not for the glory of God, for their own glory and honor and delight. They crowed to their neighbors about how wonderful their sanctuary was, better than everyone else's. And they had done the wrong thing. They had given up spiritual good in pursuing what otherwise, if they had been given the resources in God's providence, would have been fine to do. We must not fail to guard the saints from such presumptuous sins. And we must not let worldly things take over our lives, strangling the spiritual best. But most importantly, look at what we must do. We must follow Paul's example. We must think and pray. We must work and pray. We must be tireless for the kingdom, for kingdom good and for kingdom glory. We must provide from what we have in God's providence for gospel evangelism and for Christian training. That's the pattern that Paul uses here. In plenty and in want, he does the work. He pursues the calling that God provides. We must pursue time and energy and resources to work among especially recent, prospective, needy, or even seriously-minded new believers and their churches. We must do the right thing, turning away from pragmatic shortcuts that will damage the church for years to come. We must insist in ourselves, as Paul here did, on holiness. Holiness in ourselves and in other believers, since we all need to be more like Jesus to give him the glory. We must love and care for one another like we're family, because in Christ we are family together. We're united to him who is our head and husband. We are not just so many marbles knocking around in a box. We're not people sitting in different chairs who kind of come in and we might rub shoulders or run into one another, but we really have nothing substantial in common or connecting us. No. We have the most important reality in all of life connecting us. 
We have union and communion with Christ and through him with the triune God and through him with one another. That is more important than anything else in life. We must not forget. Hear me. We must not forget that heavenly reward does not arrive by automatic deposit into our accounts each week or each month. No matter how thoughtless or self-centered or lazy we might be. There is a purpose to this life and it is to give glory to God. Yes, we are to enjoy God forever. But we are to enjoy Him by getting with His plan. We are to enjoy Him by sacrificially giving Him time, talent, and treasure for His glory and our good. We are to work so that trials now on earth will turn to gold. And we must not forget to fill up the sufferings of Christ by walking sometimes, as he calls us in his providence, the stony path and the more difficult way. So this is my question, or a set of them for you. Do you? Do you do these things? Do you care to do these things? That is An easy question to ask, but a very hard one for us to answer. Do you too want to be like Jesus? Paul did, and he patterned his ministry in such a way as to achieve that spiritual fruit and good. Let's follow Paul in taking up the cross and following his Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do. So in conclusion, let me say this. We owe the gospel to the world, not because they're so good, but because Christ is. And we owe the gospel particularly to prospects and to new converts and to the new churches of those converts. Now look, that doesn't mean that if we take the congregation and hive off a third of it and send them out, I don't know, what's west of here? And uh, they plant a church there, and oh, well then we have to provide everything for them because, you know, that's a new church, and new churches deserve everything. That's not the point or argument from this text. This is the gospel and the good news going to a new location, that there might be a flagship church that is started in a place that is bereft of gospel witness they then grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They come to understand their place and their calling as believers and as members in a local church. And then they carry on that same responsibility and tradition of providing for the next. Oh, we owe the gospel to new prospects and converts and to their churches like them. And prospect... Uh, excuse me, and proclamation therefore entails obligation. We must live in a blameless way, not needlessly burdening others with our rights 
when gospel good hangs in the balance. There is, in the most basic sense, a spiritual truth here, which is the spiritually strong owe the spiritually weak in the kingdom of God because God owns all things first. Now, what does that mean for us? It means that as we go through our life and our going is always under God's providential decree, always under His providence. As we go, we must go with the gospel and we must go preaching and teaching, sharing, calling, inviting, cajoling others in the world to come and to hear of Christ and to put their trust in Him. Daddy, what should I be when I grow up? You sometimes hear that from at least one of your children. And you know the answer is very straightforward. It's not what I want you to be. It's not my vision for your world. It's a matter of God's purpose, vision, and calling. And so we look at gifts and talents and contacts and situations. We look for the curve of God's providence because God's providence will have a clue as to their calling. We recognize that the normal arc of providence needs and also extraordinary occasions where he just brings things together in God's. All of these are important in the wider missions endeavor that we're all called to. Yes, there's God's Holy Spirit direct command, which Paul had received to go to this place, but that work of God has now been inscripturated for us. And it is God's Holy Spirit illumining ministry which impacts us. It's not that we go out to a hill and we hold a Bible to our head and we ask God, now Lord, what is it that you want me to do and which, which line of work or ministry should I pursue? That would be an arrogant approach. Rather, we look inwardly. We ask others to look at us and to see how our gifts and ministry, uh, usefulness is in ministry. And by his illumining power, personal, particular, and pressing concern, we see the direction that he and the church believe that he is calling us to. We live in a culture that is tempted to ignore providence and tempted to confuse personal emotion with the Holy Spirit. But you and I always fit into the category of as we go, we take the gospel with us. And we are also now always required to be supportive of the go team that is going to places that perhaps in God's providence we are not so suited to go ourselves. That's the why and the how of missions. And I thank God that here at Christ Church we practice it in a biblical way. You know, the old view the old worn-out view that thankfully has now been thrown away by most of the church is that we are all Christians here and we go to the people over there, over there, over there that need us across the waters. Well, yes, there still is going, but we go here and we go there both. 
Uh, we live in a target-rich environment for the glory of God. We must do more than just go. Missions, as Paul patterns it here for us, always includes evangelism. And you would be shocked at the number of occasions on which there really is no serious gospel content presentation to certain missions endeavors. And I'm not talking about short-term teams. I'm talking about long-term missionaries. I have been disturbed by things I've seen on the field before. But it is good that God shows us in his word that we go humbly, we go helpfully, and we go filled with the word of God and the gospel of God for the glory of God. And new churches, they get by with a little help from their friends. New churches, freshly born new churches, or maybe reborn churches, reformed churches. You know, sometimes even pagan pastors get saved by the glory of God. I've seen it before, and we'll see it again, no doubt. To burden a child is bad, and so the father, Paul in this case, he provides even by the labor into the night of his own hands. These new converts were poor, and he repeatedly testifies in chapters 1 and 2 to their need, and therefore that he would not be practically burdening them uh, with needing his. Free evangelism is part of the teaching of this text, and free discipleship for converts is a part of this teaching of the text too, but don't mistake that for some sort of European Christian socialism. Oh my goodness, no. That would undermine the whole basis of the endeavor. We must set a wise example to model blamelessness in our church, in our life together, as well as on the field. And our top priority must be to exhort, to encourage, to charge that all walk in a manner worthy of God because that's where we live. We all live in the realm of sanctification. Each one of our addresses as believers is some numbered house address on Sanctification Street, isn't it? So today, if you're visiting and you don't know the Lord, we don't want your money, is a fair comment to make. Mary doesn't want to have to count it. It's not a part of our accounting scheme and budgetary process. We don't sell the church for filthy lucre. But membership is serious. Membership has real obligations. It's easy for you to be a visitor. It's a much more serious step for you to become a member. And it is Christ who calls you to that, not us. We don't twist your arm. We don't manipulate you. We don't work you into a moment of decision so that you have to join after the last of uh, hour of some sort of a joining class. No, no, no. Establishment in the Lord comes first. Growth comes in its wake. And we hope in this way, even in your own life, you will prove the that you are the genuine article and that the Holy Spirit really is at work, and therefore ministry must be genuine to reflect such. Now, pastor, 
you have one minute left. Are you saying that we should not pay the pastoral staff next week and the weeks after? Well, if that's what it takes for gospel ministry, we should have such a conversation. But if God has provided so that gospel work can flourish, then we must do what Paul did and make provision for it ourselves as our church family. And you know that takes more than a team of one. So it's nice that Paul's a proto-Presbyterian here in this passage. Let us pray.